Well, good morning, everybody. If you are a guest with us today, my name is Matt. I'm one of the teaching pastors here, and it is a privilege to have you with us on this very day, day because today is the beginning of a whole new series. As you can see from the bumper video, it's all about digging out, right? And we all probably have something in our world that we need to dig out with because we all face different things. And so we're going to be looking at things like apathy and digging out from hurt and digging out from these different issues. But today, today is near and dear to my heart because today is all about digging out of doubt, all right? And I, for one, this is near and dear to my heart because for many years, I have had a relationship with doubt. And many of you know this is to be uh, true of my life. And it's a little bit weird, I think, for some people to hear that a pastor might struggle with doubt. You're like, wait, is that in your job description? No, it's not in my job description at all. But it's just that thing that I admit that, hey, these are areas that I struggle with sometimes. These are things that I have to fight through. And it's not that I want to do it that way. It's not that I'm looking to invite doubt at times into my life, but it's just the way my brain works. I'm always looking for patterns and solving puzzles and trying to make the pieces fit together. And in the world of faith, sometimes that can be a little bit challenging. And so what it means for us today is that I'm not simply coming and teaching principles on dealing with doubt or digging out of doubt, but these are principles that I need to use as one who tends to sometimes battle with doubt. And so these are kind of tried and true to my own life, and I hope they can become a benefit for some of you if that is in fact the area you struggle with as well. Now, today is going to be lightning fast, man. It's going to be not just principles, but popcorn principles. And so if you open up the app right now, now if you don't have our app, you can get that on any app store. You just type in Redemption Church Duval, it's going to be there in the app or notes, and if you open the notes today, it looks like a Mad Lib, all right? It's just lots of empty spaces, lots of blanks, lots of things to fill in, lots of principles, and so if you're going to be taking notes in the app with your thumbs, you might want to pop your thumbs, crack your thumbs, exercise your thumbs, get ready, because there's going to be smoke coming off your phone by the end of the day, all right? Because we're going to be going through a lot of stuff here, and we're going to go in a pretty rapid speed, but my hope is by giving so many little popcorn principles, maybe some aren't for you, but others are, and vice versa for those around you. And so that's kind of the mission of the day. So looking forward to this whole series. If, if, if you have a friend that maybe is kind of flirting with the Christian faith, they're maybe wondering, hey, should I re-engage something I walked away from? Or maybe you just have a disbelieving friend that you wanted to invite to church. This would be a great series to do that with because, again, it's very practical. But at the same time, as you will see, very biblical as far as tons of verses are going to be flying at us as we're going through this whole particular topic even today. And so right now, I want to go ahead and give us a second just to quietly pray. Then I'll go ahead and pray, and we'll jump right into what we have today. Jesus, we come before you today as a people diverse, a people who might find themselves all across the spectrum on the topic of the day. And what I love about your promises is that you're not just a distant God that kind of generally oversees the affairs of humanity, but you're a personal God that comes alongside each one of us and shoulders whatever it is that we are burdened by. And so I pray, not just for today, but throughout the series, that we will sense your presence, your guiding hand, your kind of your push of grace to move us forward to new places. 
Not simply so we can be faithful to you, but so we can really genuinely, genuinely sense you in our faith. And so we ask for you to move and to work and to guide and to show yourself strong uh, in our lives and in your church. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you in your good and powerful name. Amen. So doubt, right? I was thinking about this. This is kind of a hot topic right now, like in our society. Uh, matter of fact, probably a lot of you have heard the word deconstruction at some point in the last couple of years. This idea of people kind of taking their faith and saying, I'm going to tear it all apart and I'm going to deconstruct what I believe and I'm going to figure out what I believe going forward. So that's become pretty popular in recent years. There's a whole new group of people called ex-evangelicals where they were once in the church, they were once faithful, they served, they gave, they came, whatever else. And now they're like, no, nah, I'm, I'm sort of done with that. There's been a lot of talk in ministry circles about the millennials for a long time. Are, are the millennials going to return to church once they start having families of their own because they left in college and they had all these critiques against the faith, but are they going to come back? And now we're seeing increasingly that many are not. And so we're scratching our heads. We're wondering about our kids that are a part of Gen Z now. That's kind of like the mid-20s and below. Matter of fact, there was just some data that came out this week that for the first time since we've been tracking this stuff, there's an inversion in a generation where women in the Gen Z category are less likely to affiliate with faith than men. That's a radical change. It used to be that uh, maybe women would come to church more than men or the wife would come and the husband wouldn't, and now we're seeing a flip. And even in the flip, we're seeing data that's kind of like it's less about faith and it's maybe more about their politics. Even on kind of forms that people fill out. It asks the question, what's your religion? And the growing category is people checking none. So doubt is very popular today. But are you ready? Doubt is not new. Not at all. In fact, this book of faith, you ready? It's filled with people with doubt. That's what I love about it, right? It starts at the very beginning. Adam and Eve struggle with doubt. Abraham and Sarah, doubt. Their kid Isaac, doubt. His kid Jacob, doubt. Moses, doubt. David, doubt. Solomon, doubt. Every single Old Testament prophet struggled with doubt. We see that the apostles struggled with doubt. Paul struggled with doubt. Jesus' own family struggled with doubt. Many early churches struggled with doubt. So if you are in this room or you're watching online today and you have a struggle with doubt, you are in good company because there is plenty of doubts to go around, right? So to get our bearings this morning, kind of get a sense of what we're moving toward, I want to get a, a working definition of what we're discussing in, in place. I want to kind of just set that in stone a little bit for us so we know kind of what we're working with. And we're going to do this both by, by way of vocabulary and by way of context. So in the vocabulary realm, kind of starting with the English language, the one we hopefully speak, there is both the verb and the noun elements to this word. And what we see is it means to be uncertain about, consider things questionable or unlikely, hesitate to believe, maybe you distrust some things, or you regard something with suspicion. It's to lack confidence, it's to have distrust, uncertainty of belief or opinion that often interferes with decision-making. Now, I don't want to drill down too deep on that, but I want to just highlight the simple idea that when we talk about this subject, I don't want us to think in terms of you're either a believer or an atheist, as though it's binary. 
It's all or none, it's on or it's off, it's black or it's white. No, if anything, what we find is that there is nuance and there is subtlety to the reality of people battling with doubt. In fact, we should put it on a spectrum, right? We have a slide here that shows it kind of stretches anywhere from having subtle doubts to having staunch doubts. And there's a difference, right? Subtle is like the, I don't know, I'm not sure, I wrestle with. Staunch is like Richard Dawkins drinks the blood of puppies, hates God, and will kill God if he actually exists. Like, that's Richard Dawkins, right? That's a staunch doubter. That's an atheist. But there are plenty of theists who battle with doubt. And the context of their doubt can be diverse as well. Now, to understand this a little bit more, I want to maybe drill into how the New Testament tries to articulate doubt in the Greek language. There's more than two words that kind of describe the situation at different times, but two kind of primary ones kind of paint pictures for us. One paints the picture of kind of two-stanced or double-standing. So you get the image of like this, like I believe, but I struggle. I'm all in, but I'm kind of out. I get it. I'm confused, right? And maybe you feel that in some parts of your faith. The other variation of this is this idea of thoroughly adding up, right? You're trying to pull all the pieces together. You're trying to formulate a picture that you go, I can, I can get behind that. And even that can be a challenge. In fact, one of my uh, Greek tools, I love the way I describe this. Right? It says a going back and forth when evaluating in such a way that typically leads to a confused conclusion. The term implies one confused mind interacting with other confused minds, each further enforcing or reinforcing the original confusion. Now, can I give you an illustration of that? Let's say after church today, you and the family, you pile into the car and somebody says, where should we eat? And so one says, this is stopping. And the other says, pickle time. And the other says, let's go to the tavern. And the other says, let's go to the grill. And somebody says, let's go to the Grange. And, and there's all this confusion. Everybody's got a mindset on what they should do. And then pretty soon you're just like, we're just going home and having sandwiches. And that's what you do, right? Because that's kind of all of these minds coming together. And sometimes that can happen in the world of doubt as well. So you go, I'm going to solve my doubt. I'm going to study a bunch. I'm going to talk to a bunch of people. And from that, I'm going to have a conclusion. And sometimes you can. But equally, you might do all of that and you have uh, just greater confusion instead of clarity, right? And, and, and the Bible says that both can happen. In Proverbs, it says, hey man, you should go get a lot of input because there's safety in a lot of counselors. And then you get to Ecclesiastes, it says, oh, but with much knowledge is much sorrow. So, so sometimes in the journey, it can be a little awkward to try to land on something. What this means is that sometimes how we deal with doubt, it's not always cut and dry. And part of this is because the kinds of doubt we deal with varies from context to context. Let me give an example of this. Here's some different areas that maybe people struggle with doubt. Some have intellectual doubt. Right? They look and they go, okay, let me get this straight. Of all the religions, your religion is the only religion. And so they have these philosophical problems with it. Or they look at science and they look at the Bible and they go, these things don't fit together. So they have these intellectual or philosophical doubts. But then there's others. They go, that's not my problem. I totally distrust all that. My problem is an emotional doubt. And my emotional doubt is, I don't sense God in my life. I've been in a dry space for a long time, and, and I'm wondering if he's there because I just haven't sensed things in weeks, months, or years. Others can have spiritual doubts. 
Down to like, hey, I, I prayed. Are you there, God? God, we need $2.1 million in just a few months to build a building. Are you there, God? If you didn't watch the video, watch the video, right? But, but those can generate some of the doubts. You also have obedience doubts. Obedience doubts are interesting. It's the people that go, man, I believe this is the word of God. I believe it's all the truth of God. But then certain commands they doubt and they don't do. So they go, yeah, I believe it's true, but that one is not gonna work out well for me. I know it says love my neighbors, but you don't know my neighbors. So I don't have to do that one. I know it talks about certain kinds of purity, but that's not for me, so I don't have to do that one, right? So there's those kinds of doubts. I just doubt that it's gonna be healthy, good, or a blessing to my life. There's circumstantial doubts. Circumstantial doubts are where bad things happen to people and they wonder if God's there or cares. Like, as a pastor, I have been at the bedside of a five-year-old who dies of cancer, and the mother is wondering, where's God in my pain, right? It's that kind of circumstantial doubt. Like, has he even shown up? I prayed like crazy. I prayed for good things. I prayed for years for a good thing for my child, my friend, my spouse, whatever, and God doesn't seem to show up in that, answering a good prayer. Is he there, and can I trust him? There's also institutional doubt. Institutional doubt is perhaps one of the most potent forms today, which is people go, I've been hurt by the church. I've been hurt by Christians. I've tasted their hypocrisy or their judgment or whatever it is. And if that's how God-filled, spirit-led people behave, then I don't want that because I don't want them. And if they look like him, I'm not interested. Right? That's institutional doubt. And then you have some people that just struggle with doctrinal or biblical doubt. Right? A doctrinal doubt would be something like, let me get this straight. If a person doesn't believe in a faith that they can't see and a God that doesn't audibly speak or show up on Tuesdays at noon, they go to hell forever and ever 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 and ever. They go, I don't know if I can do that. Or they go, a talking snake and naked people eating fruit? I don't know. Right? So it's a biblical doubt or a doctrinal doubt. In other words, what I'm trying to say is not all doubts are made equal. So when we talk about this word, and we can sometimes kind of judge quick, like, I don't have doubts. Well, when we go through the list, we'll find that at least some point in our lives, we may all struggle with doubt. And I'm not here to defend doubt. I don't want you to think that's my mission. My mission is to acknowledge doubt. And from that, hopefully, we can understand how to dig out of the doubts that we acknowledge. Now, here's what I also know from the beginning really quick. Some of you, no doubts. Like, you just, you got the gift of faith, man. Which, by the way, the Bible says there is the gift of faith. And for the rest of us, then there is the effort of faith, the focus of faith, the, the journey of faith. But some just have the gift of faith. And so when they hear about doubt, they're like, no, man, that's not me. I'm all in. I love that. I am so blessed by that. Here's what it means for the person that says, I just don't struggle with doubts. It reminds me of what we just read in Jude, but there's an added part that we didn't read. He says, but you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. So for those who have no doubts, you get to have mercy on the rest of us in the room. It's so great. Right? And so we're going to try to figure out how we dig out of these doubts. We're going to do this in two parts. And the first part, if you're taking the notes, is what we need to know about doubt. 
what we need to know, because if you're going to deal with doubt, you need to know what you're dealing with, right? I think that's part of the idea. And so jumping right in with our first principle in all of this is number one, doubt is real and normal because it's called the Christian faith, not the Christian fact. See, if, if God was handling Christianity as this idea of measurable, undeniable, quantifiable principles that nobody could argue, we wouldn't be talking about faith, right? We'd be talking about just a concrete, matter-of-fact kind of thing. But by and large, that's not how this tends to work. I'm not saying there aren't some facts, some proofs, some things. But at the same time, the way it's constructed is we are taking steps where we don't always know. We're not positive on everything. We don't have all the concrete issues laid before us, but we have this sense of almost risk involved, and that's what faith is. It has this level of, like, risk. This level of, I'm going to lean into something, even though my senses may want to push back at times, I'm going to step anyway and go into that place. In fact, I love the way the writer of Hebrews says it. Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It's the evidence of things we cannot see. So this thing that we do, we engage in, is proof to the world of something that the world and even we ourselves can't fully see. It's where our hope is, but even hope has this idea of, hey, there's a variable in there that I can't be perfectly positive of in every single way. Again, facts are verifiable, quantifiable, repeatable, undeniable. That's what a fact is meant to be. Faith, again, though, is about trust and hope and unseen things. Now, if God showed up every day at five o'clock in every time zone, and he did skywriting every day, this is me, I am God, read your Bible, I am the one in that Bible, I love you, turn to me. If that happened every single day, and a person then still doubted, that's not doubt, that's dumb, right? Because you're looking right at it. I am God. Read my Bible. I'm the one in there. Follow me. And it would be obvious. But that's, that's not the scenario that we all live in. God operates instead by working in hearts, moving in community, speaking through this book in ways that are, are, are unique and mysterious, right? He operates in the unseen. And because he operates so often in the unseen, it leaves room for, for doubt. As much as it's designed to stimulate our belief in the journey of faith. This is part of the mystery of God that he unfolds. What this means is the second thing then in your notes. Having doubts doesn't mean you're sinful or broken. I want to be clear about that. Now, I also want to be clear about this. There are occasions and things where sin can lead to doubt. I've seen that. I've seen where somebody just starts taking on sin in their lives and eventually they're like, I don't even believe anymore. So sin can lead to doubt, but not all doubt stems from sin. That's where I want to be clear about this. And part of the reason I say this is because I've known many Christians over the years that have no problem with doubt and yet tons of problem with sin. So just because you struggle with sin doesn't always lead to doubt. Just because you have doubt doesn't mean it's always because of sin. That's not always the equa equation in this. In fact, sometimes I've even found where a person may struggle with doubt but they, can, they continue to follow Jesus. And in doing so, that's a unique act of faithfulness. And as they do so, they admit their doubts. And in admitting their doubts, that's an act of faithfulness because it shows their headspace. So we need to remember that God hates lies, including the lies that we will lie to ourselves that I'm not really struggling with doubt. 
and so I don't really need to address it. If you don't address it when you're struggling with it, it may get the best of you. And, and so we just want to be honest about those things. In fact, you know, there's a person in the Bible that was honest about their doubt, right? And it was a sincere doubt. They weren't trying to be difficult. They weren't trying to be stubborn. It was just an honest doubt. And it was so deep, you know, the poor guy got stuck with the name Doubting Thomas because of it which is so jacked up, man, and here's why. Like, we see two real detailed things about Thomas in the Gospels. The first, he's the only dude that believes on the scene. In John chapter 11, everybody else is like, ah, we don't know, and he's like, no, I'm all in, let's go, right? So of the two stories, one, he's got tremendous faith. But in the second story, he gets dubbed the doubter, but it's understandable. Jesus is risen from the dead. It's the scene that's just after that event. And it says, starting in verse 24 in John's gospel, he says, one of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we've seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands and put my finger into them and place my hand into the wound in his side. Was he being honest? Sure. Was he being sincere? You bet. Did he have all the reason in the world to doubt? Yeah. Dead people don't come back to life after three days. Right? So he's not being a difficult dude. He's not trying to be stubborn in his spirits. But then Jesus shows up and he says to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side and don't be faithless any longer. Rather believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. And then Jesus told him, you believe because you have seen me, but blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Now, I want you to notice what happens in this story. Thomas is presented with a fact. So he is called to touch, to see, to feel. The, the tangible senses are drawn into this. And so for him, this is not that tough to believe, right? That's like sky riding at five o'clock every day. But what, what I love here is that Jesus promises a blessing to those who are willing to believe even though they don't see. And I love this because I, I, I really look and I go, I think he knows that blind faith, and let's be honest, much of our faith is blind faith. Not all of it, but much of it is blind faith. And he knows that blind faith is hard. And so he promises to bless those who labor toward it, even those he, he knows that they may be, be battling a lot as they doubt it in the process. Like, there's just this shifting back and forth. I believe he rose from the dead, but I struggle with the idea of people rising from the dead. And I, be, I believe in, in this message, but I sometimes struggle with this message. Or I believe in the Bible, but I sometimes disobey it because I don't really believe all the things the Bible says. And all of that is in there. So, we have to understand that not all doubt is sin. Some doubt can be sin, but not all doubt is sin, and you're not broken simply because you struggle with it. Third, Dealing with doubt has many solutions since not all doubts are created equal, right? Like we said, it's on a spectrum. It varies, intellectual, emotional, spiritual, obedience, circumstantial, institutional, doctrinal. Let, let me put it a different way. There's a big difference between the person that says, I doubt a talking snake, so I'm not sure about God, or I doubt a talking snake, so I'm not sure we should read Genesis 1 or 2 or 3 in that kind of way. There's that kind of doubt. Versus the person that says, you know what? I was in a high school ministry. I was really committed, and my youth pastor molested me, and because of that, I struggled with, with doubt. Right? That's a big difference. 
there's a, there's a big difference between I was really wounded by other Christians and I doubt versus I'm not sure about the inerrancy of the Bible and I doubt. So I want to be clear as we talk about this word, don't try to shove it all into one category and say doubt's silly or doubt's dumb or why do you doubt? There are deep wounds for some people's doubt and others it's just a mental exercise. I get that. But it means then that one apologetic does not fit all doubts. There's not one solution to all the things that people run into. And Paul knew this. In Acts chapter 17, it says, as was Paul's custom, he went to the synagogue service and for three Sabbaths in a row, he used the scripture to reason with the people. He explained the prophecies and proved that the Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead. And so there he's in a setting of people that believe in the Old Testament. He can use the Bible to help them see a new way and he can do that because the Bible is their authority, right? And so that makes sense. He can use the Bible to solve the problems of doubt. But a little later into the chapter, we see that he also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And when he has the discussions with them about their doubts, he doesn't open up the Bible. He uses their landmarks, their poets, their philosophers. And he does that because that's their authority structure. They go, we don't care about the Bible. That's just some book the Jews have over there. That's not our thing. Our thing is all this stuff here. And Paul's like, great, I can work with that too. Right? So he addresses their doubts from using the secular, or he addresses the other doubts by using the sacred. Both can be utilized in dealing with our doubts. And so not one size fits all. Not all doubts are created equal. You've got to know that. Fourth, resolving doubts, and this is a tough one, doesn't always end by removing doubts. That's a tough one. But resolving doubts doesn't always end by removing doubts. In fact, I know many faithful followers of Jesus who follow faithfully even though they don't always feel a sense of faith, which is strange, right? But there's a reality to that. They're being faithful even if they don't feel faith. In other words, they still have questions, hesitations, uncertainties, they have disagreements, but they keep following Jesus despite those things. They stay bought in they find enough equilibrium to go, I don't understand it all. And in not understanding it all, I could go one or two ways. I could just ditch it or I can stick with it. And even though I don't get it, I stick with it. They own kind of two different ideas from Paul. One is this, he says in Romans 11, oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. Like he's like, the stuff of God is gonna blow your mind so much you can't put all the pieces together. And the doubter looks at that and here's the thing you have to understand about the doubter sometimes. They read that and they go, one part of that troubles me. But in another sense, I'm kind of glad I can't fully get it. And so I'll surrender. I'll surrender what I don't know. And they surrender what they don't know in part because of this other thing that Paul says. He says in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, now we see things imperfectly, like a puzzling reflection in a mirror. But one day when all things are perfect, when we're resurrected, when the end comes, then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that we know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely just as God knows me completely. In other words, part of the reason we'll struggle with doubt is because we don't even get a chance to see everything clearly. 
And, and this is a good reminder for the people that might be a little bit more like, no, I'm certain on a lot of things. So often people who then struggle even more struggle because some people come into their life that are certain about everything and act as though this isn't true. And we don't see partially and not fully clearly, right? But for the person that says, I want to be faithful and I might not resolve all of my doubts, they just acknowledge like, okay, I get it. God's God, I'm not. He's smart, I'm dumb. I can be at peace with that. And maybe that's what you're needing here today. Like, hey, I struggle, but I, 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 I tend to want to still solve everything. And maybe you got to let go and just realize you can't solve it all. Number five, and this one's really important, I think. Doubt can either level your faith or take your faith to a new level. It has the power to do one or the other. I think about a dude named Saul who became a dude named Paul. He was the first deconstructionist. He was. You see it in the book of Philippians chapter 3. We see in there, he's talking about his former way of life. He's like, man, I was all in on the law, all in on Moses. I was an obedient guy. I took my faith seriously. As to the law, I was blameless. I was doing it all. I was slaying it, nailing it. I was, I was the man. And then Jesus comes and blows it up. Blows all that stuff up. But in blowing up his faith, he came to a deeper, richer, fuller, true faith. Verse 7 of Philippians 3, I once thought these things were valuable, all this pedigree, all this professionalism, all of this sense of commitment to the Old Testament law. He says, but now I consider them worthless, trash, poo-poo in Greek in comparison to what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless in comparison with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He was grateful it all got blown up. And I love the story so much because that's my story. Right? My story was I used to be real certain, really conviction-based, really positive. My Christian way was the Christian way. I was kind of a legalist. I was kind of a know-it-all. I had it nailed better than everybody else. And then Jesus is like, you're cute. And so I went from certainty to confusion to just being callous and really just in complete disbelieving there is no God space. And then from that, contrition. And in the contrition, when I returned, I returned more gracious, I returned more humbled, I returned probably with more questions than answers, and returned with a lot more understanding of others who struggle and who doubt. Because I'm like, I know that headspace, right? Like, for a person who's in real deep doubt after having been in a space of faith, I, I can tell you firsthand, that doubt seems like real clarity, real calm, real peace to be in that doubt space. It just feels that way. And so coming through that and coming out the other side, I understand the doubting heart. I don't look and go, come on, man. Why, why are you doubting? I don't have enough faith to doubt. No, I understand that space. That was God's grace to me. Feels a little bit like the story of Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, I'm going to make you a beast for a while, and you're going to learn some stuff and come back and be better. Right? That's the way God worked in my life. And so by leveling my faith, he leveled up my faith. Paul speaks of this dynamic in the book of Romans. He says, because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this new place of undeserved privilege where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to the sharing of God's glory. Yes, that's awesome. We get to get all of that. But he says, we can also rejoice when we run into problems and trials for we know that they will develop endurance and from that character and from that strength and from that hope. See, we sometimes read that passage as only like some kind of physical problem, financial problem, life problem. I believe God uses doubt. He takes faith and shoves it into the forge and he puts it under tremendous heat. But that's the only way that it will temper and become stronger. 
And sometimes in the heat, it melts for a while, but it can come out and make you stronger than you were before. This leads to the last thing that we need to know, and that is that Jesus is generous with sincere doubters. He's generous with sincere doubters. Now, the key is sincere. Like, I I know cantankerous, difficult, they just want to argue and cause trouble doubters. I'm not talking about that. I'm not standing in a room full of atheists right now that just say, this is my mission to destroy your faith. That's, I'm talking about the sincere doubter, right? They're just sincerely honest. They're sincerely working it through. They're trying to dig out. They're trying to figure out which way is up. I love this because here's what it says about Jesus for people that are in that kind of space. It's in Matthew chapter 12. It says, he will not crush the weakest reed nor put out the flickering candle. What I love about this is that it's this idea, if you're like a weak reed, you feel like you're about to break. Or the light of your faith is just flickering. The, 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 the wick is just down to nothing and you're just like, it's barely there. Jesus isn't gonna step in and be like, or really, you're not in? We're done. Now what it says is he's going to come alongside and he's gonna aid you in the journey. This is why in the previous chapter, Matthew chapter 11, he said, come to me. Come to me if you're weary and you're carrying burdens. I'm going to give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. That is true to all sorts of contexts. And one of those is understanding is not Jesus versus doubt, but Jesus comes alongside you in your doubt. And he wants to take the yoke with you and help you carry and work through those things. So that's what you need to know. You need to know those things. Some of you may need to know it more than others. Maybe some of you are like, I know all those things. That's great. That's what we need to know so that we can focus on the second part than what we need to do, right? How do you then begin to really deal with doubt, dig out of doubt, and combat it? Real quick, rapid fire. Number one, digging out of doubts starts by admitting you have them. You just have to admit it, right? Be honest with yourself. Be honest with God. There is this beautiful story in the Gospel of Mark chapter 9. It's raw, it's real, it's, it's incredibly human in its orientation. There's a father that loves his son. His son is infested by a demon. The father doesn't know what to do. They've tried stuff, it hasn't worked. He's heard about Jesus, he comes to Jesus, and he says this, have mercy on us and help us if you can. Nobody else has been able to help, but if you can, please do. And so Jesus says, what do you mean, if I can help? Anything is possible if a person believes And then the father, he cried out, I do believe. And he equally says, but help me overcome my unbelief. This is so honest, right? Because this is your last ditch hope. A lot of us would lie. I believe it, do do it. This guy is just sincere to the core. I believe it, but I doubt it. I want it to be true, but I'm not sure it can happen. I'm all in, but I'm not in. I don't even know what I'm trying to think or understand or process or put together. It's just, if it's possible, can you do this thing? I love the fact that he just admits, here's my space. I think God loves it when we admit that's where we're at. I don't think he takes it personally. I think he appreciates the honesty. The second thing, digging out of doubts requires honestly then moving toward God with your doubts honestly moving toward God. Here's why I say that. It's very easy and it's more tempting to move away from God when you're having doubts, right? To camp in your concerns, to do a deep dive into your deconstruction, to kind of stew in your skepticism. Very easy to do. I've done it. 
There's a weird, bizarre, dark comfort in those kinds of things. But instead, what you need to do is you need to go to God, you need to let it out, and you need to let him have it. And I don't mean like, here, God, let me, have, let me give you my doubts. I mean, like, you need to let him have it. Here's why I'm struggling. I don't say that because that's my take. I say that because I see that repeatedly in this dude named David. Like David, when he had issues with God, he came with issues. And he came with issues with God. There's tons of Psalms on this, but Psalm 13 is so good. Starts in verse one. Oh Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever, right? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? Have you ever felt that way? Like, where are you? Why are you showing up? Why don't you care? I keep praying. I keep serving. I keep faithful. I keep giving. I keep doing the things you call me to do. And I don't sense you, feel you, or see you. What's the deal? See, that's, that's where David's space is at. You say you love us. You say you'll bless us for obedience. You say you're with us. Bullcrap you are. That's how he feels. I love the honesty. But notice what he's doing. He's talking to God about it. He's not going to his atheist Reddit board and talking with the other atheists about how God is not showing up. God's fake. He's going to God and he's hammering this out with God. And by the end of the psalm, guess what? His doubts aren't resolved. He doesn't say, oh, but now I see. Now I feel you. Now I sense you. He doesn't say that in the psalm. Nope. The psalm simply kind of ends with a course of action, right? And the course of action is this, but I trust in your unfailing love. He doesn't say, oh, now I sense it. Now I feel it. Now I'm experiencing it. It's still an act of faithfulness. I'm going to trust in your unfaithful or in your unfailing love. I will rejoice because you have rescued me. I will sing to the Lord because he is good to me. There's this sense of like, hey man, fully resolved on everything, but I'm going to do this thing anyway. I'm going to lean in to what I need to do. See, what this means is working out basically with our uh, with with the faith that we have, right? Just continually, just like uh, what faith I have still left right now, I'm going to work from that place as opposed to I am going to focus on the faith that I don't have and I'm just going to get stuck in that spin cycle. Because I've met those people. I've met the people like, you know, I don't have much faith left, so just let's flush it. No. Work with the faith that you have and do so honestly. Number three, digging out of doubts accelerates when you starve doubts and feed faith. You have to starve doubt. You have to feed faith. And that's hard again in today's world because honestly, there's plenty of ways that you can feed your doubts. Right? You can read anti-faith books, listen to disbeliever podcasts. You can invest into watching deconstruction TikToks. That's a real popular one right now. And you know what? If you listen, watch, read, they'll make some compelling cases. They can feed your doubt if you want. You'll be like, ooh, that's a good one. Ooh, that's another good one. That's another good one. But if you're going to dig out, you have to feed faith. You can't feed your doubts. And part of how you feed faith, you ready? By being faithful. You have to stay faithful to feed your faith. Jesus said it this way. It's kind of interesting in John chapter 7. It says, Jesus told them, and this is the religious leaders that he's sort of always arguing with. He says, my message is not my own. It comes from God who sent me. Anyone who wants to do the will of God will know whether my teaching is from God or if it's merely my own. I don't know if you caught what's going on there. 
But what he says is, he does, or maybe what he doesn't say, he doesn't say, uh, if you discern the will of God, then you'll know whether I am teaching the truth or not. That's not what he says. What he says is, if you do the will of God, in other words, if you will be faithful, then you will be able to discern what the true faith, what I'm saying, is really all about. So what I think is important here is that you understand that the road to feeding faith isn't just, I'm gonna read a bunch of books on faith. That can do it sometimes, but more often than not, what I find is it's an entire life of orientation toward being faithful to Jesus, what Jesus calls you to do, and living a life of faithfulness, even when your sense of faith is struggling. The illustration I use for this in my own life that I remember, it's the idea of you're at the edge of the desert, the wind is pounding you in the face, you got a backpack on, you cinch the straps, you lean forward hard, and you start the long journey through the desert. I'm going to be faithful. I don't always feel the presence of God. I don't feel faith, but I will be faithful anyway. And I will walk this walk. Because I guarantee you, you're better off to walk that walk of faithfulness than to say, you know, I'm going to wait till I feel faith because you'll take a walk of unfaithfulness in that sometimes. And that's far more destructive, leaves far more wounds, far more baggage that you don't want to carry. Some people say, well, then what you're saying, Matt, is fake it till you make it. And I'm like, yep. But what I'm saying is a little different. I'm saying obey it till you make it. Walk in faithfulness until you sense faith again. This is closely linked to number four. Digging out of doubt is aided by doubting your doubts with the same effort you are doubting your faith. Doubting your doubts, that's a Tim Kellerism. Love me some Tim Keller. Because here's the thing, you can become very codependent with doubt. I know I can. It can work you up, it can work you over, you get all fired up about it, all right? All wrapped into your doubts, so much so that, ready? Here's the thing. You can blindly doubt just as much as people will accuse you of blind faith, right? It's like, I'm reading Richard Dawkins. I'm just drinking it down all of it like it's a good chocolate shake. Richard Dawkins is right. I don't even use my brain to think about it, right? No, you need to doubt your doubts. You need to have intellectual integrity, right? So as much as you're like, oh, these doubts are so good, maybe they're not. Think it out. Make sure you're really like weighing stuff. In fact, that's a principle of the Old Testament. Proverbs 16, the Lord demands accurate scales and balances. He sets the standards of fairness, and then in Proverbs 20, the Lord detests double standards. He's not pleased by dishonest scales. You know what's great about both those passages? The world around you agrees. The world around you agrees that, hey, we want fairness. We want the sense of looking at both sides. Great, look at both sides. Look at faith, look at doubt. Doubt's a big industry. Lots of people make money on your doubt. They have all kinds of motivation to want you to doubt. And yet what I find is so often when you weigh things out, what you sometimes will find is that the issue is less about faith and sometimes more about people who claim faith. So the faith isn't the problem, but maybe people of the faith for some can be the problem. Or it's less about God and it's more about our expectations of God. Maybe that's really the problem. Or it's less about the Bible and it's more about our kind of sense of how we try to approach the Bible, or it's less about what we know and it's more about what we don't understand. When you weigh it out, you can find that maybe my doubts are not quite what I thought my doubts are, and, and there can be some leveling that goes on. This takes us to number five. Digging out of doubts accepts that faith won't always make sense or be perfect. It won't. This is why my favorite book of the Old Testament is Ecclesiastes. And then I'm a gospel guy in the New Testament. That's my space, right? 
But the writer of Ecclesiastes, I dig it because he rolls in and he's like, okay, let me get this straight. We're good Jewish people. We believe in the law. God promises in Deuteronomy, he will bless the obedient. He will curse the disobedient, but he's looking around at life. And he goes, wait though, I see the disobedient getting the head. I see the obedient getting run over. I see the poor that are righteous losing. I see the rich that are wicked winning. It's so bad, he says in life, that sometimes he wonders, is it better that you just are never born, that you die before you're born and you never see the light of day and the problems of this world? And even there, he says, and I'm not even sure when we die, if we go up, if we go down, if we have the spirit of an animal that goes nowhere or we go to heaven. He's utterly confused and frustrated and he's taking it out on the issues and on the law and on God. God and everything else. Like, he's just a mess. I love that guy. Because what he is is the most authentic doubter of the Bible. And his lament is understandable. His lament relays all of the stuff that we sometimes battle with. So Ecclesiastes is really a work of doubt. And you want to know how he wraps up this giant work of doubt? Here's what he says. Well, that's the whole story, which is, should have ended there, but no, he doesn't end there. It says, here's my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands, for this is everyone's duty. In other words, he does not go back for another 12 chapters and be like, now let me explain all of my doubts. No, they just sit there heavy. And his conclusion is, I don't need to resolve it all. What I do need to do is fear God and obey him. And that's what counts. That can be enough. And again, I, I shared back on Easter, that was my story. My story was real simple, right? When I went from my doubts and my disbelief back to faith, it wasn't an argument, it wasn't Ravi Zacharias, an apologetic, Josh McDowell, it wasn't any of those kinds of things that convinced me at all, like not even remotely close. In fact, when I came back, I still had issues, I still had concerns, I still had things where I'm like, I don't know how that all fits or whatever else, but for me, it was really simple. I concluded that life without Jesus was a bummer and life with Jesus was better. And that was enough. I didn't need all the dots to, to connect. Some did, some didn't, right? But what I knew concretely is that Jesus' life and message and example and sacrifice was enough for me to say, I am in and I, I, I wanna follow this guy. I wanna follow this Lord, Master, Savior, even with my questions. And I find that actually, for me, that actually generated a deeper faith. Before, to be honest, my God was the Bible. And after, Jesus was my God. And there's a difference. I think that's in part the grace he showed me. Stop worshiping the Bible, start worshiping me. And that gave me a deeper faith, because now I follow in faithfulness, and it generates my faith. Because of this, I'm trusting in the sixth and final point, believe it or not, number six. Digging out of doubts remembers that even when we struggle with faith in Jesus, Jesus is faithful to us. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. If we are unfaithful, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny who he is. Our doubts do not sway his love for you. They don't. In fact, in the midst of your doubt, I want to remind you, he is always right there with you. He is praying alongside you. He is pulling for you. He is pleading for you. And he is promising to be with you always. Now, right now, I want to encourage everybody to bow their heads. And again, I know there's different categories in the room or online. For some of you, you're a doubter who is yet to believe. And Jesus makes the invitation to all doubters everywhere 
that he came, he lived, he loved, he died, he rose, he ascended to deal with our sin, to make us right with God and to build the bridge of relationship. And if you're a person that says, man, I feel the pull, I'm moving from doubt to belief, you simply go to Jesus and say, forgive me for my sins. Forgive me for all the things that I've done to go against you. Bring me into your family. Bring me into your fold. Bring me into your kingdom so that I can be your follower and your witness in the world around me. You make that your prayer, your way. He hears you and he brings you in. And yes, you may still have some doubts. That's okay. He works with that, right? He's a good and loving God who understands our humanness. Then there's others of us maybe in the room where we've been struggling with all sorts of different kinds of doubts or maybe one particular type of doubt. This is your moment to say, Jesus, just help me with my doubt. Help me work through my doubt. And maybe for some of us, we know a person that's struggling with doubt and there the prayer is, God, give me the wisdom to be generous and gracious in their doubt. Jesus, we all come before you with something, with some need in the realm of doubt. Help us to be truly faithful, truly authentic, truly honest. And as we maybe wrestle with some of these things, that we will rely on you to help us wrestle. Instead of digging deeper, we will want to dig out with you. We thank you for your grace, Jesus, and your love and your name.